Welcome back to the Santiago Boys. My name is Evgeny Marozov, and I'll be a host. On the last episode, we told you about the day that changed everything in Chile. September 11th, 1973. The day of the coup. The day that ended two utopias. One socialist, one cybernetic. And it caused so much tragedy across the country. With Salvador Allende himself tragically dying while defending the Constitution inside the presidential palace. The lives of others were radically transformed as well, with Fernando Flores ending up arrested and in prison. Stafford Beer wasn't in Chile on the day of the coup, but he's been trying to help his Chilean friends rebuild their lives after it. The government that commissioned Cybersyn may now be finished, but the stories of these two people, Fernando Flores and Stafford Beer, are far from over. And the transformations that their lives are about to undergo will definitely surprise you. Stay with us. A few months after the coup, Stafford Beer simply won't give up on Chile. He's been tirelessly helping his old friends to rebuild their lives after Pinochet seized power. But some of his old allies, some of those friends that he used to meet at the Athenaeum Club, have now switched sides. They're with Pinochet. They're praising the dictator in the British press. And Stafford is furious. He even writes a letter to the Times of London to tell one of his former colleagues off. How dare he defend the brutal dictatorship? Stafford's brother Ian, who does hang out with a lot of the British elites, sees quite clearly that Stafford's passion for Chile has made him into something of a black sheep in that society. Thus, shortly after the coup, Ian attends a dinner party in Oxford. He still attends quite a few of those. And the subject of Chile inevitably pops up. They were all discussing the future of Chile and what had happened as a result of the revolution. And then they realized my name is Beer. I think it was the most awkward moment, in a way, of my life. Because these dons in this college were very anti. Stafford. Stafford doesn't care what they think. By then, he has already lost faith in his ability to change their minds. Here's what his friend Jonathan Rosenhat thinks about Stafford's conflict with the British society. He never could be thoroughly a member of British upper-class circles, and possibly by the time he could have got in, he no longer wanted to. For now, Stafford would continue to play the game, as his Chilean comrades still depend on him. But he won't be doing that for much longer. Meanwhile, on Dozen Island, some of Allende's former ministers are locked up in a brutal prison camp. But this won't stop them from learning new things. How could this be otherwise, right? They're incurable intellectuals. So even in this concentration camp, they somehow keep their minds alive and busy with books and debates and discussions. And then something unexpected happens. A guard feels sorry for them. Sergio Bitar, 
the guy said, okay, you have been working the whole day. Would you do something else? Well, we would like to organize a seminar. And I was one of the organizers of the seminar. Dervish is granted. So we will have a guy talking about the brain and neurology, another guy talking about teaching English, other one myself teaching French. Even cybernetics, the favorite subject of the Santiago boys, appears on the Dawson curriculum. With Fernando Flores preaching the usual gospel. They discovered this thing about cybernetic there. Probably has an influence. You may remember that Fernando has always been quite an avid reader. So he continues that passion even inside this brutal concentration camp. His friends are happy to supply him with the most cerebral material. Gibbon Siap, the German designer, is one of them. I knew that he was in prison. Yes, of course. I sent him works of a German philosopher, and uh, he was very grateful for this later on, he told me. All this reading will eventually take Fernando on an adventure that is beyond his wildest imagination. So now, a year has passed since the coup. Pinochet's secret police are still ruthless and very efficient. They even hire experts to do their dirty work for them. Experts like Mike Townley. Remember him? The guy who used to make Molotov cocktails for fun? And spy on Allende's communications? Now he works for Dina, the intelligence service, eager to kill people left and right, with his wife on call, happy to help him in some of those gruesome activities. One of Townley's early missions sends chills down Fernando's spine. I received the new that a bomb had killed General Pratt in Buenos Aires. I knew the relation that Pratt had with, with uh, Pinochet. Pinochet was second guy there. I said, Pinochet, he's never going to kill Pratt. But that time was devastating. He can't kill me. Hmm? Because I knew a lot of secrets about the real relation between all, all, all of that. And I I need to, to enter in despair a couple of times in my prison that I believe that, that I want to be killed. But Contreras, the head of Dina, is not done yet. Just a few days after the Prats assassination, he strikes again. After torturing some leftists, he finds out where Miguel Enriquez, the feared leader of Mir, is hiding. As Contreras' forces close in, Enriquez has a choice. He can run away and leave his pregnant girlfriend behind, saving his life and continuing the struggle, or he can stay with her and probably lose his life. He chooses to stay. She loses the baby but lives. He dies. But with so much repression going on, even Pinochet's ruthless secret agency is in need of some help. And it arrives from the most predictable source. Peter Kornblow explains. In the spring of 1974, the CIA sent a team to Chile to help the young director of national intelligence, the uh, secret police service that Pinochet authorized and created under his friend and colleague Manuel Contreras, become a professional secret police service. And the CIA's know-how comes in handy in this new Chile. The CIA team trained DINA officers in computer work, uh, they helped the DINA build an infrastructure 
for intelligence gathering and counter subversive activities that it was going to engage in. And it stayed in Chile for, I believe, approximately three months, supplying training and equipment and money and, and other things. It's been a year since the coup, and Stafford is back in India. He loves it there. He feels like he's found his true home. He writes a letter to his friend, Sonia, back in Chile. Stafford says that he might even stay there, in India, forever. He's no longer the British intelligence officer defending the empire. He can actually enjoy everything that India has to offer now. So now he just wants to enjoy its beauty and culture and its vibrant spiritual heritage. Here's what he writes. I thought of you often as I moved around the villages of Mysore and Rajasthan wearing the simple Indian dress that I love the most. The language is coming back to me fast. 80% of Indians live in those 600,000 villages. There is hope for them yet. I very much want to help them. Why is he in India? He's come here to deliver an important lecture. A lecture where Stafford speaks up against the rich countries that exploit the poorer ones. He no longer sounds like a management consultant at all. By now, he's a full-blown Marxist. Or at least he sounds like one. Perhaps that's what hanging out with all those Santiago boys has done to him. India is just one of the many stops on Stafford's busy itinerary. He's still traveling the world management consultant that he used to be. Most of it is for assignments of various kinds because he does have to make ends meet. Eventually, though, all those trips, inevitably lubricated with a lot of alcohol, take their toll on him. Vanilla Beer explains. He had a, a couple of strokes, and I'm amazed he didn't have more. He didn't sleep much. He had barely rested. He smoked. Here's Stafford himself explaining his health problems in a letter to Sonia. This illness business is a problem. It is cardiovascular and affects my limbs and my vision. I also got blood poisoned in the mountains after attack by a plague of mad bugs, which hasn't helped. Doctors told me to stop. In Santiago, things are very different now. The Chicago boys have been put in charge of the economy, while Milton Friedman, their favorite guru, has even come to visit Pinochet and even take a picture with this despicable dictator. The plan that they used to turn Chile into their free market utopia is called El Ladrillo, or the brick in English. This, of course, refers to its enormous size. And they prepared it while Allende, of course, was still alive. But now that he's gone, the Chicago boys finally have a chance to implement their vision. Unfortunately, all those Santiago boys, the radical engineers around Allende, are no longer in the picture. Thus, the only cybernetic tool that their Chicago-trained opponents will recognize is that of the market. And the Chicago boys don't face much resistance to their agenda. After all, they have guns on their side. No one can stop them, as Sergio Bitar, the former mining minister, points out. Those guys, the economists that the so-called Chicago boys, well, they could work only because they had a dictatorship. 
and they didn't care about the, the circumstances that what happened to the people. So slowly but surely, they go about undoing everything that I ended it. They make healthcare and pensions private. They kill off the electronics industry that I ended so much wanted to build. They're also busy justifying poverty, inequality, and dependence. Judge Orwell's Ministry of Truth would be proud of their rhetorical achievements. While all of that is happening, Fernando and his friends are still in prison. But they are not on Dawson Island anymore. They have been moved to another place, a place called Ritoque. It feels a little better there. But not everyone is so excited about it. Francisco Letelier, the son of Orlando, the former defense minister, had this to say about some of his visits to Ritoque. I remember my very first visit to Ritoque marked me for life. You know, my father was a, uh, was a very respectable man. So me, as a kid, to finally see him, uh, to see that he had skin cancer and that his fingers had been broken and that he had lost so much weight. This place does sound terrifying and harrowing. So that was, that was a big deal for me to experience that in the short visits we would get to see him. Also a very uh, contradictory experience because unlike Dawson Island, Ritoque was on the central coast, on a beautiful stretch of coast that my father really loved. And as we'll soon discover, there is more tragedy to come for the Letelier family. After the coup, Gabriel Rodriguez, one of the original Santiago boys, starts a consulting company. Ostensibly, it's to get rich in this new capitalist Chile of Pinochet. But in fact, this company is just a front for financing MAPU, the political party, which now has been forced to be fighting underground. And Gabriel's consulting company somehow manages to land a most lucrative contract with the Chilean Navy. But before they can finish the job, Dina, the intelligence agency that everyone fears, swoops in on them. They think that the Navy must have been crazy to have hired these Allende loyalists to be working on state secrets. How could they possibly give them access to all these highly classified materials? So, unsurprisingly, Dina arrests Gabriel and they take him to Villa Grimaldi, which is an infamous site. It enjoys a terrible reputation as a torture chamber. It has now become famous all over Chile. It was a very sophisticated restaurant that was transformed in a, a place for torture and imprisonment and eventually for disappearance. They took me there and I stayed there for 10 days, approximately, living with uh, three other people from the Mir in a closet of one one square meter. So we need to do some kind of uh, full sleeping a little bit. One, two of us need to be standing up and the other two sitting. But then something truly amazing happens. Remember the old rivals of the Santiago boys from the campus of the Catholic University? The ones organizing the October strike that paralyzed the country's transportation? 
I'm talking about the so-called gremialistas. Remember, they were the right-wing lawyers obsessed with professional associations and making sure that the government didn't interfere in them. Well, their leader has now become one of the main advisors to Pinochet. All that advocacy and work during the October strike clearly paid off. And his intervention to help his former enemy, Gabriel, probably saved his life. So Gabriel was actually taken out of Villa Grimaldi, released, that is, and instead he was sent to, wait for it, Ritoque. So, yes, he finds himself in the same concentration camp as Fernando Flores, his old friend. As unexpected reunions go, this one is very strange. Fernando and myself, we sit together with the division in the middle, and then he passed me books and we talk about. There were kind of possibilities of doing kind of connection. And Fernando, it seems, has a much better deal in Ritoque. We were in the tourist class. It was the business class, the tourist class. We were 200 uh, people living there and uh, mixed. Gabriel finds Fernando completely absorbed in philosophy and biology. And one of the books that Fernando is reading stands out in particular. And the book was about something absolutely strange for me. And say, this guy is getting crazy. It's a book in English that talks about the planet and something called ecology. First time in my life I have heard that name. See, this guy is, is getting magical or things like that. Blah, blah. Two years after that, I understood that he was talking something quite serious. So, by now you might be asking, what of Project Cybersyn? Well, some of the junior people that worked on it stay in Chile. They start a new consulting company where they use Stafford's ideas. Minus, of course, all that leftist stuff about worker participation and solidarity. None of that, of course, would be possible in this new neoliberal Chile of the Chicago boys. The military simply would not tolerate it. So it's all about management now. Shortly after the coup, Cybersyn also gets a new boss. He's the same right-wing engineer who brought soldiers to Raúl Espejo's house, dragging him to Corfo. That, of course, was quite predictable. Promotions like this don't happen without a reason. So this new boss wants to know absolutely everything about Stafford Beer and what he has been up to during his visits in Chile. Whom he'd been meeting and why, where did he go, all of that stuff must go into a report that his former colleagues are supposed to write and submit to this new right-wing boss. Has this information ever made it to Dina, the intelligence agency? Well, we don't know for sure. However, we do know that Manuel Contreras, the terrifying head of Dina, the guy who's been obsessed with fighting communist insurgency even before the coup, does reach out to Mario Grandi, Fernando's Italian associate, and he wants to talk to him. Contreras asks Mario a lot of questions. Questions about Mapu and Fernando Flores and much else. He even asks him to collaborate with this new fledgling intelligence service he is building. 
alla fine quando mi disse se lavoravo con loro Mario reasonably says no thanks to Contreras and being an Italian citizen he actually manages to live Chile so for now his problems are over I've talked to a few other Santiago boys about what it is that Contreras may have been up to when talking to Mario Gabriel Rodriguez for example told me that Possibly, he was really interested in the Talex network. Probably the connection with Mario is that Contreras was very intelligent. Probably he was looking for what is, what is this cyber scene thing, what is this? And they was told that there was Mr. Grandi that knows about this. But Contreras has his own plans for all this technology, both Talexes and computers. And these plans promise absolutely nothing good. At least not to Chile's radical leftists. Meanwhile, after all these trips, Stafford's health issues force him to reconsider his lifestyle. And according to his daughter Vanilla, he was right to worry. If he'd carried on his old life, he'd have had a heart attack and died, you know? The devastating events in Chile also prompt Stafford to completely reassess his priorities. Well, he felt that he'd wasted his life. He felt that, um, you know, contributing to the, uh, to the structure of capitalism was not something that was admirable. While the revolution in Chile may have failed, Stafford's own personal revolution is just beginning. The situation in Chile completely revolutionized him. He, was, he didn't want the old life back, he wanted a different life. Writing to Sonia, Stafford outlines his new plan. You knew all about the contradictions and my determination to change my life, but we disagreed about the means, since I felt I could not abandon all my dependents. In fact, I did leave Sally because she would not talk about anything and refused that I should change at the beginning of the year. There are other changes afoot. I am buying a one-room, hundred-year-old laborer's cottage in a very remote situation as my personal base and place of predilection. I want to stay there as much as I can. Sally and the family will also move to Wales where I can easily visit them. He's tired of all the luxury. By selling Firkins, the Rolls-Royce and so on, I'll raise enough money to give Sally her house and its possessions and to start a trust fund. This trust will pay Cynthia, Sally, and my mother. It will also pay me the average per capita income of my country. Cynthia, by the way, is Stafford's previous wife, the one before Sally. She's the mother of Vanilla. And to top it off, Stafford withdraws from the public eye, as Vanilla regretfully points out. He stopped doing TV, you know, and he shouldn't have done because, uh, well, I'm glad he did. But when, when he did TV, that pulled in clients, of course. It gives you respectability. He couldn't bear it, though. But as Stafford steps away from the limelight, little does he know that a rock star celebrity, yes, a rock star celebrity, will soon enter his life, bringing unforeseen fame and attention. Meanwhile, back in Chile, Contreras does have a problem. The guys from Mir, those radical leftists, are still out there, even if they have lost their leader, Miguel Enriquez. 
and they're sneaking in and out of Chile, using their connections to network with other far-left movements all across the region. And Contreras just needs to stop that by all means possible. So he talks to Washington, which he does have a lot of supporters. He even goes there, he meets senior people, people who are engaged in all sorts of military and defense activities in the United States. And after those visits, he comes up with a plan for better intelligence sharing across the whole region. This will hopefully make it harder for all those border-crossing leftists to be so mobile. Contreras also invites spy bosses from other Latin American countries to a big and important meeting in Santiago. And this meeting marks the birth of Operation Condor, which is something of an evil twin to Project Cybersyn. Francesca Lessa, the Italian academic at Oxford, explains. Condor was a secret operation that was agreed in Santiago in, in this meeting in 1975, when the uh, military regimes were especially keen to be able to silence the uh, exiles that were uh, carrying out international condemnation campaigns against what these regimes were uh, carrying out in their own countries. Contreras, having received training in all these advanced technologies during his time in the U.S., does have a lot of gadgets up his sleeve. And he thinks he can win his war against Mir and other radicals. But what is he planning to do with this Operation Condor? And what kinds of gadgets will prove useful in this deadly mission? A cold-blooded murder in the heart of Washington is a harbinger of things to come. This is Pinochet, abetted by Contreras, going after his enemies. We've told you before about the CIA trying to get rid of Fidel Castro in Cuba. Remember Operation Mongoose and all those other interventions that they've been planning. So most of them, of course, did not succeed, as we all know. But there is a dangerous aftermath to all those efforts, a rather invisible one. So after all these people have been trained to overthrow Fidel Castro, they're now roaming many countries, including, of course, the United States, where they're causing trouble. In 1974, 45% of all violent terrorist acts around the world are committed by Cuban exiles whether in the United States or outside the United States. So all that they want really is to overthrow or destroy the regime of Fidel Castro. This is Alan McPherson, a scholar of Latin America at Temple University. He notes that DINA, the intelligence service run by Contreras, employs some of those Cuban exiles to go after Pinochet's sworn enemies. And they zoom in on the most important of them. This man had been advocating for an alternative technological war order just three years earlier in Lima. But now he's in the crosshairs of dangerous assassins. Here's what happens. Orlando Letelier, who endures almost three years of imprisonment, is finally released. And you will remember that we met him earlier and quite a few times 
He was the Chilean ambassador to the U.S. when whoever it was was bugging the embassy. He was foreign minister, he was defense minister, he spent time in all those concentration camps and prisons. So after all that time, he finally returns to Washington, where he previously served as the Chilean ambassador, and he does so with a renewed sense of purpose. He really wants to fight Pinochet, and he has the resources and the connections and the wherewithal to do it. And Pinochet really hates this guy, and he hates all the attention that Letelier's activism is bringing. Orlando Letelier was considered a threat by the Chileans uh, for a few reasons. One is simply that he was uh, very good at propaganda. He would write articles against the Chileans. He would, you know, disseminate the human rights violations. Uh, he was allied with other Chileans who were exiled, and many of them who were not socialists, but they could work with this man who was a very sort of smooth uh, socialist. Letelier also understood that the Chicago boys and their enablers like Milton Friedman were actually helping to boost Pinochet's image abroad. So he's trying to discredit them. He's trying to point out that they're actually ruining Chile's economy. They're not building some kind of a utopia that has never been experienced on Earth. In fact, he's even writing articles about it, attacking them, and viciously so. But that's not the only way that he's damaging Pinochet. The other threat was economic. Letelier was able to convince people to boycott Chile. Eventually, Manuel Contreras knows that there is only one course of action left. So he sends his trusted Lieutenant Mike Townley, yes, the Mike Townley we've been meeting throughout this podcast, and there are also two Cuban exiles who join him, and they go to Washington to kill Letelier. And they are planning to do it right in the heart of the American capital. Alan McPherson recounts the gruesome details of that assassination. On September 21st, 1976, Orlando Letelier is rushing out of the house. He says a quick goodbye to his wife. Uh, he gets picked up um, in his own car, by the way. Letelier's assistant and her husband are sitting in the back. Behind them, unbeknownst to them, is a car occupied by two Cuban-Americans uh, who have put a bomb under Letelier's uh, legs in the car. They click on uh, a remote control unit and it blows up his legs and the car. Letelier dies almost uh, immediately, although he's taken to the hospital first. All of this is happening on Embassy Row, Washington's nerve center of international diplomacy. As Peter Kornblue points out, at the time, the American capital was not at all used to such acts of violence and terror. This act of international terrorism still ranks, uh, besides 9-11 here, as, a, as one of the only times that, 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 that terrorism has actually visited Washington, D.C. But as for America itself, there is bitter irony in all of this. This was an act of state-sponsored international terrorism from an agency that the United States and the CIA had helped to train. So we actually assisted the, the actual agency that then sent its agents to Washington to commit this horrible atrocity. And so that's part of the history that we really need to know more about. The FBI finds Letelier's briefcase after the explosion. 
Turns out it's full of secrets and letters, some of them to and from Beatriz Allende, some of them concerning the activities of the anti-Pinochet movement, where Beatriz is also one of the leaders, alongside Letelier. But then a prominent journalist twists those letters in order to make it look like Letelier was actually getting money from Fidel Castro. And that, of course, could damage the reputation of anyone fighting Pinochet in America. So who was this high-profile journalist? You will be surprised. It's none other than Jack Anderson, the guy who broke the ITT scandal, helping Allende. In a dark twist of irony, just a few years earlier, Anderson was actually collaborating with Letelier when all those ITT memos came out. Remember, Letelier then smuggled them to Chile and had them published as a best-selling book, all of it thanks to Anderson's investigative work. And now they find themselves on opposing sides of the conflict. The Cold War was truly strange like that. These are the kinds of intrigues that Stafford Beer is no longer interested in. For him, stepping away from the world of advising Western governments and corporations has to open up a new lease on life. David Whittaker, a bookseller and one of Stafford's new friends, observes his incredible transformation. When Stafford was moving to the cottage, he decided to destroy all his correspondence and masses of his stuff uh, in a bonfire. You know, he, he was having some kind of an, a breakdown, and this was a cathartic action for him to start afresh. And he said a great weight was lifted, but the bonfire went on for days and days. David discovers Stafford thanks to his love of, you'll never guess, rock music. We go back to 1972 and Top of the Pops, and Roxy Music appeared on there with their first single, Virginia Plain. And I was 17, by the way, living in Ireland, and I really liked the look of them and the style. There was nothing like it ever before. And I particularly picked up on the character Brian Eno. <laughs> so I started following his career and buying all his records. David, something of a Brian Eno fanboy, hangs on his every word. And then one day, in an interview, Brian Eno mentions a certain Stafford beer and all his cybernetic series that apparently influenced him more than many other musical and artistic approaches. David is truly intrigued, like probably many other readers of that interview. And he just can't let it go. Now he needs to find out just who that Stafford beer character is. But how did Brian Eno find out about Stafford Beer. Well, one day, Brian gets a book from his mother-in-law. Here he is himself telling us that story. She came back from Chalk Farm Library with a book she'd taken out for me. And she said, here you are, Brian, I think you'll like this. And the book was a book by Stafford Beer called Brain of the Firm. And she was absolutely dead right. To Brian's surprise, he just can't put down this book. And I absolutely absorbed that book. I can still quote quite a few sections from it. It was exactly what I needed to be able to think about this particular piece of music that I wanted to write about. Brian eventually finds the courage to reach out to his hero. 
I'm a musician whose main output is albums of rock music, he writes rather sheepishly, as if already imagining himself as a cybernetic factory of sorts. For Brian, being an artist is in fact akin to creating a well-oiled machine, which runs seamlessly and with little interference. By then, Brian knows that the impulse to control every aspect of the creative process is probably as bad as the Soviets trying to plan their economy. He likes to set up some rules and conditions for his art, but that's pretty much it. Then he just wants to let it happen on its own and with minimal intervention. I don't know if you've noticed it, but this is more or less how Stafford himself wanted his ideal factory or government to run. Some planning, yes, but much of it happens in the process itself. As problems emerge, as instability develops, a clever manager, or in this case, a clever artist, steps in and resolves the crisis, or tweaks the situation to make it more advantageous to the system itself. There was one sentence in Brain of the Firm that really stuck with me. Um, I think it goes, instead of trying to specify the system in full detail, you specify it only somewhat, and then you ride on the dynamics of the system in the direction you want to go. I thought this is a whole different way of making art. And to Brian's astonishment, Stafford not only responds to his letter, but eventually he shows up at his doorstep in London, and it's quite a sight. Well, he felt sort of like a giant to me, because he, he was broad-shouldered with this huge head of hair and this enormous knitted pullover, which sort of came down to his knees. It was in one of those very thick, sort of peasant-like organic wools that he seemed to favor. <laughs> so it was, like, it was like a tent had arrived at the door, a tent with a head sticking out of the top. Before long, Brian returns the favor and makes his way to Stafford's unassuming cottage in Wales. It's nothing like the lavish mansion that Beer used to live in. But as Vanilla points out, her father was very happy with the simplicity of it all. Yeah, he just loved the place. It was, it was very quiet. It was miles from anywhere and very silent. He had no phone. Stafford has finally escaped the trappings of mindless consumerism. He made his own furniture. I'm talking to you from his table. And his chair is here, along with another table and a footstool. I'm very proud of those. But just say, this lifestyle is not for everyone. It was very charming, the whole sense of self-sufficiency, except, of course, that the water had a dead sheep in it, so that was unusable. <laughs> Dressed to the nines for a fancy dinner, Brian Nino heads over to that cottage. But as soon as he gets out of his cap, two massive poodles are charging towards him. It was a filthy day. It was muddy and wet. And they were like two four-legged paintbrushes. And they ran down the drive and jumped at me, both of them. And I was immediately... <laughs> All my smart black clothes were covered in mud from head to foot. <laughs> so, so I arrived at his door looking a complete mess. Um, 
which he didn't even seem to really notice, actually. After the rain clears, Stafford invites Brian to take a spin in his Rolls Royce, a memento from the previous life that he's been living. As they cruise around, Stafford becomes increasingly philosophical. We drove in this car, um, talking all the time, Mostly he, mostly he was doing the talking. And at one point, I had sunglasses on. It was a sunny day um, by this time. It had been wet when we started. But he turned to me and he said, why do you filter reality? And I, I said, what do you mean? He said, those glasses. He said, you should be grateful for all of reality coming into your, you know, into your body. Soon, Brian discovers that the days of Stafford's extravagant transatlantic fests, remember all those dinners he's been having flying between London and Santiago, are long gone. Now all those meals are replaced by a much, much simpler diet. But the drinking and smoking are still there. And he was talking really quite intently and quite uh, quite a deep level. And he was chain-smoking these big cigars, like big... Cuban cigars, and he had a bottle of sherry, and he was chain drinking the sherry. Um, he didn't seem at all drunk, by the way. He obviously had quite a tolerance for alcohol. In the middle of all that smoking and drinking and talking, Stafford gets up, apparently to put a pot of water on his old-fashioned gas stove. He's trying to cook something, but Bran is not at all sure what that might turn out to be. In the meantime, the room where they're sitting is getting steamier and steamier. This cottage now looks like sauna. No attempt at tea had been made at this point, and the, the place was absolutely full of steam. So it was a very small cottage, very low ceiling, you know, um, and uh, there wasn't any ventilation. So it just, he was only sitting across the table from me, but he, he was getting dimmer and dimmer in the fog. <laughs> and plus, he was smoking this cigar like there was no tomorrow. The place was just completely steamy. Hours later, the only thing brewing is, well, instability of some kind. Finally, the saucepan boiled out completely, and he went back in and put some more water in and put it back on the gas. And then, after a while, he said, what about some food? I said, great, because I was actually quite hungry by now. But the same thing happened again. He put the potatoes on, and then he just forgot that they were on there. And the, again, the ro- whole room filled with steam again. And finally, the potatoes had kind of turned into fragments, little fragments of potato. And that's what we ate. But it was such a long time after the cooking had started that we got to eat. As Brian takes his first bite of this cybernetically kosher meal, it becomes clear that history books will probably avoid any mention of this culinary masterpiece. It was not a memorable meal. (laughs) Not not a Michelin-star job. It's hard to believe that this terrible chef once dreamt of running the economy of an entire country. In Washington, news of Letelier's assassination hits hard. The US government is worried about this. 
They're supposed to be friends with Pinochet's Chile. Could it really be true that they would send assassins to the American capital in order to get rid of one of their dissidents? So the American government starts investigating and looking into what's going on. It's at this point that one high-ranking official at the State Department writes to his boss, Henry Kissinger, by then Secretary of State, a very disturbing note which expresses a lot of concerns and anxieties about what's going on in Chile. The security forces of the Southern Cone now coordinate intelligence activities closely. They operate in the territory of one another's countries in pursuit of subversives. They have established Operation Condor to find and kill terrorists of the Revolutionary Coordinating Committee in their own countries. So what else does this memo have to say about Operation Condor? Well, here it is in black and white. There is extensive cooperation between the security intelligence operations of six governments, Argentina, Brazil, Bolivia, Chile, Paraguay, and Uruguay. Their intelligence services hold formal meetings to plan Operation Condor. It will include extensive FB1-type exchanges of information about shady characters. There are plans for a special communications network. It's a typo, by the way. What was meant was FBI-type exchanges of information. So this is what the memo is referring to. The reason for this network is shockingly clear. To carry out assassinations, to torture, to kidnap, to do whatever one can to get rid of all those shady leftist characters. And it's been going on for a while, apparently, with very little resistance from the United States. On matters of dark tech, Manuel Contreras is still ahead of everyone. Here's Francesca Lessa giving us a detailed breakdown of what Condor actually entailed. The first one was uh, Condor Tell, which was a secret encrypted system that guaranteed a quick and fluid communications between the members of Condor. The second feature was Condor Eje, which was the operational office that in practice conducted these abduction operations or murder operations on the ground. Then we also had a, um, an archive of information or a sort of centralized database that basically collated all the information that these countries were sharing on the targets. The resemblance between Condor and Cybersyn is striking, to say the least. Let me tell you what I know about Condor. Condor had a system that had the same elements. John Dingas is an investigative reporter who knows Chile all too well. He was even once interrogated by Dina. Obviously, what I'm trying to nail down is whether the Cybersyn infrastructure, which was computers, on the one hand, telex machines on the other hand, hundreds of telex machines, uh, whether obviously these were in the hands of the government after the coup because they were already government property, and whether they were taken over by the, the, the intelligence, not just the military, but the intelligence apparatus, DINA, and used in Condor. Is there a connection between Condor and Cybersyn? 
I've done some digging myself, but the evidence is far from clear. But does it really matter in the grand scheme of things? Does it really matter if some of the cyber-seen Talix machines were eventually used in the Condor atrocities? After all, the Chilean police had been using this Talix technology for years even before Allende took office. Rather, it's the symmetry between Condor and CyberSyn that is of most interest. It is quite disturbing just how similar they are in their setup. Judge for yourself, when it comes to Condor, there is a central computer in Santiago, and there is an operations room in Buenos Aires. And it's not even mentioning the Talix network, composed of machines that are connecting intelligence agencies throughout the region. In fact, it's very much like the setup of CyberSyn, only blown to the international scale. In terms of operations, you have a similar, let's, the analogy is the intelligence agencies in the six countries, later eight countries, were the equivalent of the enterprises, and, uh, and they're feeding, they're getting reports back and forth. Condor's operations room in Buenos Aires has no use for economic chairs. As Francesca Lassa points out, the people in this room are here to plan and execute assassinations. This office was a, a sort of forward command and coordinating office, and that each Condor country sent at least two officers to be permanently located on the ground in this office to be in charge of processing intelligence, um, to uh, receive some of the Condor tell communications and transform this information into actual orders for raids and kidnappings. And then teams would be dispatched to actually execute the orders. At least Condor's communications seem secure from the likes of ITT, but is it really so? Very soon after the founding meeting in late 1975, all the Condor member countries were given this cryptography uh, system that would enable them to uh, transmit communications in a secure way. Brazil, a country with a long history of repression, is the one to share this cutting-edge cryptographic system with the rest of the Condor network. But where did they get it from? As it turns out, the Brazilians received this encryption equipment from a firm in Switzerland. It all sounds completely innocent, of course. Who would distrust a firm in Switzerland, of all places? But as we'll soon find out, perhaps things are not what they seem. Remember this moment. It's been a struggle to understand the connection between Cybersyn and Condor. But then I had a chat with Jack Zipes, who's the so-called Karl Marx of fairy tales. Yes, he analyzes fairy tales for a living. And only then I understood that these two phenomena, Cybersyn and Condor, are like two versions of the same story. The story of the sorcerer's apprentice, whose themes have been present in many fairy tales around the globe. And for a good reason. The tale itself speaks to some profound eternal themes that have to do with human struggles over power and knowledge. The initial sort of uh, step or phase in the uh, stories that are called The Sorcerer's Apprentice 
is one in which a young boy uh, learns all the knowledge and magic uh, that a sorcerer can uh, give him or, or teach him. And he then runs away uh, to use that magic and knowledge for his own interest, for his own sort of, let's say, survival or for, for his own meaning in life. Jack says that there are two types of stories like this. One kind is where the apprentice beats the sorcerer with their own tricks and then changes things for themselves and others. That's the kind of happy end kind of story. But the other kind is where the apprentice fails and miserably so, and then gets punished or even killed by the sorcerer. That's definitely not your average happy end kind of story. The second version, of course, is much, much grimmer and is not exactly uplifting. In another set of tales called The Humiliated Apprentice, uh, the apprentice is not smart enough to outdo the sorcerer and is generally punished, uh, tortured, killed, uh, done away with. You might remember the second kind of narrative from a famous cartoon. Yes, Disney's Fantasia. It's the one where Mickey Mouse messes up with magic and eventually pays the price. The images at the end are horrific because he more or less, uh, uh, Mickey has to uh, leave as, as a slave to the sorcerer. And uh, it is a disgusting, putrid film <laughs> that takes away all any possibility for a young apprentice that, that is Mickey Mouse uh, from become, becoming his own person. The Cold War in Latin America produces some rich mutations of both versions of this myth. So take the Santiago boys, for instance. They do take some ideas from American progressives, they mix them up with whatever they glean from British cybernetics, and then they add some German design flair on top. So clearly they are stealing a lot of tricks from all sorts of sorcerers, and eventually, of course, plenty of humiliation follows. But what about the secret police and the military? Weren't they too an apprentice of some kind and to a much more powerful sorcerer than German designers or British cyberneticians? Did Dina, the Carbon of Das, the Operation Condor, take their cues from the US? Did they also steal any tricks from them? Of course, it's plausible, considering America's counterinsurgency manuals, its schools for Latin American military personnel, all the surveillance and torture equipment that America kept sending to police departments all over the continent. So yes, of course, a lot of training and learning did in fact occur. But there is a bigger question here. Does the savage Latin American apprentice actually rebel against the master sorcerer? Or does someone like Manuel Contreras and others like him simply follow a prescribed playbook? A playbook that was well known to those in Washington and was very much part of what America expected them to do. That's a tough one. But Latin America, of course, has a way of making old stories new and different. So maybe the story that we do need to tell here is about something else. Maybe it's about the evil sorcerer and his evil apprentice. And somehow both of them kind of get away with everything, even as justice cries. This sounds so much more like what actually happened during the Cold War in Latin America. 
After nearly three years in prison, Fernando Flores is finally released. He traced his former life as a government official for a fellowship at, wait for it, Stanford University. His new home is California. I survived doing weird things. And, and this is the part that, that, uh, that I, I want you to know. I am the first minister of finance of South America. I didn't have any money. <laughs> no money. Immediately, Fernando has to find new ways of supporting his family. My wife worked doing sandwich for Marriott. My children were in the afternoon uh, in Burger King after the school. And uh, that's the way that we survived 77, uh, 77, 78. At Stanford, everyone around him is talking about this new big thing, artificial intelligence. The times really have not changed very much, have they? But what about Fernando's old love, cybernetics? Well, it seems to have fallen out of fashion, at least in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley was not open to cybernetics. So Fernando keeps quiet about it, obviously. I believe that with cybernetics, I, I cannot make a living in, in United States. I will be a, a guy eccentric looking something from a weird place. It's a moment that stuck with him over the years. He brings up Stafford in conversation with a leading figure in the field of AI, only to be met with a dismissive laugh. She said, I met Stafford Beer in, in Austria. I believe he's crazy. If you hear that, you are not going to say, oh, I have something to tell you about the cyber scene. To this day, Fernando's attitude to cyber scene, the very project that he helped initiate, is at best ambiguous. And as for the Santiago boys, even in exile, their network lives on. Gabriel Rodriguez, for example, arranges for Fernando to travel to Italy, where he meets other Mapu leaders. But this trip turns out to be quite a chaotic affair. Fernando's future lies elsewhere. It was a crazy meeting, absolutely crazy. So true to form, Fernando is at the center of controversy. Something happened that the party never believed him. Eh? And in a certain way, the, the traditional people uh, that were leaders of the Mapu don't like this, this Negro Flores that gets so fast up and is finally was uh, an access to agenda much better than anyone in the party. Eh? So there was a kind of resentment there. Fernando's mind is a whirlwind of new thoughts and concepts, all these things he learned in prison and now at Stanford. All these ideas about language, philosophy, hermeneutics, biology. There are all these fancy words that he mixes together, and to good effect, one must say. He's still reading books at breakneck pace, and he can't wait to share these revolutionary insights with his former comrades at MAPU. I told him several times, don't do this, because these guys are going to laugh on your face. Fernando ignores Gabriel's advice. Fernando is, is this kind of person. He was interested in, in showing to the party the strong discovery he's done on language. Hmm? You can imagine that, that the people working in, in the party we were talking about very concrete things to do, how we can uh, help him, uh, people there in negotiation with the communists, and et cetera, et cetera. Mapu fails to appreciate Fernando's intellectual curiosity leaving him with little choice but to seek success elsewhere. And so he turns his attention to Silicon Valley, 
where he hopes to find a more receptive audience. As it turns out, it's a match made in heaven. Meanwhile, over in Wales, Stafford Beer is rebuilding his life, living in a cottage in the middle of a forest. And he has been making quite an impression on his neighbors from day one. One of those neighbors, Gareth Jones, remembers Stafford's arrival there in the mid-1970s. We wanted to greet Stafford, and when he arrived then in his woolly jumper then, which was down to his knees, with a beard, massive beard on his chest then, I thought Father Christmas had come early. After all, it's not every day that Father Christmas rolls up to a small Welsh village in a luxury car. He arrived in a Rolls Royce as well, which nobody had heard of in our area. Somebody driving a Rolls Royce down the lane. Though Stafford may have logged the part of a farmer, he is anything but. He was far more intelligent than his IQ was way out of our league as ordinary farmers. At first, local people think he's a bit of a hippie weirdo of some kind, maybe even a vegan. But they quickly warm up to him because of Stafford's charm and wit. And I was thinking that I've been... In the company of Stafford and Brian Eno, I thought I was privileged or I, I was a, the, the Lord of the Rings. For Stafford, this small Welsh cottage is more than just a home. It's a space for him to explore his creativity and spirituality, and to do so in ways that he had never thought possible before. He writes poetry, he dabbles in fiction. Stafford even embraces a thinker he once found repulsive and reactionary. David Whitbaker shares his memories. And he got very into um, Gandhi's philosophy, you know, and non-violence. Stafford even mimics his new hero. There are lots of photos of Gandhi weaving on his spinning wheel some of um, the basic clothes he used to wear. And Stafford wanted this spinning wheel. And he used, the, used to get local, lots of sheep around there, wool. I, I don't know the technicalities of weaving but he, he used to spend many hours uh, in the evening. Stafford definitely no longer lives inside Captain Nemo's ship. This cottage doesn't even have running water. This means that Stafford has to get very creative when it comes to managing his water supply, as Vanilla tells us. Stafford used to go and get water in, in jerry cans from the toilets in Abiga something, you know. Oh, la, la. And he had a, a flowchart for how you use water. It's a quantified flowchart that would be the envy of any Chilean factory. You know, there was drinking water, there was tea water, there was washing up water, and the whole thing was protected until it got round to the water for washing the floor. Eventually, the last vestige of his old world has to go as well. So Stafford sells the Rolls Royce. Instead, he opts for a more proletarian option. There was one Land Rover, and when that died, there was another Land Rover. They were called Chimo 1 and Chimo 2. Oh, well, they were old and astonishingly uncomfortable. You know, you get into one of these things, and the noise was phenomenal. You couldn't talk. So, as Stafford settles into his new frugal existence, Fernando finds his digital nirvana in the very heart of Silicon Valley. His old world of cybernetic socialism is no match for this new tech mecca. At the time, 
all the action in Silicon Valley is happening at a place called Xerox Park. And Fernando just loves it there when he visits. Then I went to Xerox Park and I was so impressed with every story with mouses. Many of the scenes that we begin to see after in, in the Apple computer were there in 76. It's an otherworldly experience. For me, it was hallucination. I didn't have the categories from the whole thing, but, but I saw the future. Fernando is in the right place at the right time. Although cybernetics may no longer be in vogue, it still gives him a head start. I said, look, I need to find something to do here that use all of this. But I don't see any of these guys dealing with the problem that I was dealing in Chile. That is the managing problem, not the data problem. One day, Fernando meets the whiz kid of Stanford's computer science department. He came to my office and he looked up on the wall and there was a poster for Intilimani, which is a Chilean uh, revolutionary singing group. And he said, okay, I'm, I'm okay. I'm safe here. This is somebody who is, uh, can, will understand. This is Terry Vinagrad, now a towering figure in the field. The interaction with Fernando has always had a big impact on me in just broadening my thinking. I described him as some, the only person I know who could read four hard books before breakfast. I mean, he's voracious intellectual. Thanks to Terry's introduction, Fernando finds himself pursuing a doctoral degree and doing so with two leading philosophers at the nearby Berkeley. And slowly but surely, Fernando is changing his mind about things. After all those intense reading sessions, he realizes that data alone is not enough for successful management. Instead, he needs a system for coordinating all the people sitting inside the operations room and not just feeding them the data. So, drawing on his background in philosophy, and also his time as government minister, Fernando creates a new way of management, a way that most people in Silicon Valley are not yet familiar with. As it turns out, a lot of people there are willing to pay top dollar to hear this charismatic and eccentric Chilean man explain his vision. As Fernando tells his friend from Chile around then, we are going to be rich. And as it turns out, he is absolutely right. Ironically, this is also when money problems begin mounting for Stafford Beer. But he pays little attention to them. He finally found the person who makes it all worthwhile, Alana Leonard. We got together pretty much immediately. At the time, Alana is a PhD student in cybernetics. I met Stafford on a trip up here to Toronto to, for a conference, and eventually we ended up deciding to live here together. Basically, um, he wasn't too fond of the U.S. political system, uh, given the uh, Nixon-Kissinger intervention in Chile, and it didn't make any sense for me to try to come to the UK, particularly since he frequently was in Canada. While Stafford still enjoys spending time at the cottage, Toronto is becoming increasingly important to him as well, as Vanilla Beer notes. Stafford's time in, in Toronto was, was very special for him. He had a house with a woman he loved. 
a little garden uh, where he could sit on the what they call a deck and watch the raccoons. Uh, no, it was a lovely time. And uh, he liked the area. He was bang in the middle of Toronto. They've got the cybernetic sorted, that's for sure. There is even a science to picking the right restaurant. We named, I think, eight or ten restaurants, uh, compared them in groups of three. Well, and it was like, well, this one has this kind of food. This one has that kind of food. This one has good French fries, and this one doesn't have good French fries. And this one has uncomfortable seating, and this one has comfortable seating. One can only guess how they would rank them based on the tastiness of empanadas. Stafford, it seems, has finally found his soulmate. Next on the Santiago Boys, it's time to wrap up our story. But before we do that, we need some answers. Who is Stafford really? A friend of the people or a bossy technocrat? And how does Fernando's Marxist past shape his future in the capitalist Silicon Valley? And what about the bond between the two of them, Stafford and Fernando? Can it survive the traumas of the coup and Allende's downfall? And then there is the biggest mystery of them all. What happened to the Operations Room in Santiago? Stay tuned for the final episode of the Santiago Boys, where all will be revealed. The Santiago Boys is a co-production of Cora Media and Post-Utopia. Writing, research, development, and presentation, Evgeny Marozov. Music main theme, Luca Michele. Audio editing and post-production, Mattia Luciotti. Music supervisor, Luca Michele. Post-production assistant, Lucrezia Marcelli. Post-production producer, Matteo Salsa. The people who've been helping me to organize, record, and process hundreds of interviews are unfortunately too many to name here. But I'd like to extend special thanks to Chiara De Leone, Ekaiz Cancela, Nikolai Maximchuk, and Matteo Miavaldi, all of whom have helped me in more than one way. Full credits are also available on the podcast website, the-santiago-boys.com. <laughs>